Good morning, everyone. We've been going through the book of Romans. We took a break last week, and uh, today we're not taking a a complete break because we're still thinking about the book of Romans, but um, it's a good time to pause and reflect on what uh, James says in his epistle in the New Testament that uh, sounds on the surface like a contradiction. So, for example, in Romans, chapter 3 and verse 20, um, we hear these words from the Apostle Paul, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And in verse 28, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Then over into chapter 4, in uh, verses 4 and 5, Paul writes, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. And indeed, the writings of the Apostle Paul in Romans and in Galatians in particular um, are the source of the doctrine of sola fide, which means faith alone. And sola fide teaches that Sinners like us are justified, declared righteous by God on the basis of the righteousness of God credited to us or counted to us through faith in Jesus Christ apart from anything we do. And we've seen that really clearly in our studies through the book of Romans. But then if you turn over to James, and Adam already read all of chapter 2, but just to refresh your memory, notice verse 21 in James chapter 2. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? And what's interesting about that is James refers to the same Old Testament character as an example of his point, Abraham, as Paul appealed to, to make his point in the book of Romans, Abraham. And then in verse 24, James writes, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In verse 25, and in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. On the surface, it sounds like James is on one side of the debating table and Paul is on the other. And they're actually going at each other. They're debating with each other, arguing with each other over the point of justification. And in fact, Paul appeals to Abraham and so does James to make his point. And uh, this... Apparent contradiction has caused no small um, problem in church history. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church uses James to, as, as proof for their doctrine of justification, which is the opposite of sola fide. They teach that there's righteousness that is infused into the soul of believers And it's on the basis of that infused righteousness that makes us practically righteous that God justifies us. And also the the Mormons love James chapter 2. But even Martin Luther had a hard time with James because of James chapter 2. Martin Luther, the great reformer, wrote uh, about the epistle of James and called it an epistle of straw. 
And by that, he didn't mean that it should be ripped out of the canon of Scripture, but he viewed it as having less weight than the other New Testament books, especially the writings of the Apostle Paul, because in the view of Martin Luther, there was less gospel and more law in James, and there's this apparent contradiction in James chapter 2. So for Martin Luther, an epistle of straw. So what do we do? What do we do with James chapter 2 and the writings of Paul? And if you think about it, what do we do then with the Bible? Because the Bible presents itself and Christians embrace and present the Bible as the word of God free from error, free from contradictions, free from mistakes. So the problem is a lot deeper than just what do we say to Mormons and Roman Catholics and uh, how do we handle Martin Luther's characterization of James as an epistle of straw. Is, is this the word of God or isn't it? Is it without error? Is it infallible and in all that it affirms and teaches or isn't it? Well, that's what's at stake and that's what we're going to look at this morning. And uh, let me just preface our study by saying that I believe it's absolutely true that the Bible is the word of God and that it is infallible and inerrant in all that it affirms and teaches and there are no contradictions in it, but that doesn't mean that it's easy to see that. The Bible's a big book. It was written over 1,500 years, approximately, by some 40 uh, individual human authors uh, who did not collaborate. And the result is absolutely trustworthy and without error. Uh, but you do have to do your homework at times, like in this particular case. And then the last word I'll say by way of introduction to our study is we're not going to force fit James to make him fit Paul. We're not going to force fit Paul to make him fit James. That's, that's not resolving the contradiction, the apparent contradiction. Um, that would actually be uh, a tacit admission that there is a contradiction and the only way to get rid of it is to make either Paul or James say something that they didn't actually say in order to make them harmonize. Do you see that? That's not what we're going to do. I believe, and I think you're going to see, that Paul and James do harmonize. They don't contradict each other. They, they fit together harmoniously like the rest of the word of God. But like I said, we have to do a little bit of homework. And so I'm going to ask you this morning to pay attention and to think things through with me and uh, to, to use the mind and the understanding that God has given you in order to, to think. Okay? So that's what we're going to do. And the first thing we're going to do is to make sure we're clear about James's teaching. So here's James's teaching. We're going to look at verses 14 through 26. So we're going to look at those individual statements that we saw in their context because, as you're all aware, I'm sure, the, the Bible could be made to say anything if you take its teachings out of context. So that's not how you interpret the Bible properly. Instead, we need to look at the words of Scripture in their context. So, first of all, verse 14. James introduces the subject. He says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? What James is doing here is... Uh, setting up this exploration 
of the nature of saving faith. Paul says we're justified by faith alone. James says, well, what's the nature of that faith? What is the nature of justifying faith? And his teaching is that faith without works does not save. Notice verses 15 and 16. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? What's James saying there? If somebody is in real need, they're really hungry, they're without things that are needed for the body like clothing, they're really lacking clothing, and you're aware of that need, maybe the person even comes up to you and asks. And in the context of James, by the way, Maybe the person comes up to you and asks in church. This example, this illustration that James is using, he's probably drawing from their church experience. That's why he says what he does in verses 1 through 13, because this Christian community to whom James was writing was showing partiality. They were partial between rich Christians and poor Christians. The rich Christians were given the good seats and the poor Christians were given the cheap seats. By the way, all of our seats are cheap. <laughs> but not so in this community to whom James was writing. And so when he, said, when he talks about uh, this poor brother or sister in need, um, who is in need, he might very well be thinking about an actual situation taking place in the context of local churches. And in response to this awareness of this brother's need, someone in the church says, go in peace, be warmed and filled. And James's response is, what good is that? What good are those words? Your words do not put food in the belly. Your words do not put clothes on this poor brother's back. They're no good. That's James's point. Then in verse 17, by the way, uh, regarding verses 15 and 16, James here is in harmony with the Apostle John who wrote in 1 John 3, verses 17 and 18, if anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue but with actions and in truth. James there is writing about the authenticity of love. James is writing about the authenticity of faith. All right, so in verse 17, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So there James is saying that the illustration that he was using about the poor man who just gets empty words applies to someone's profession of faith. A profession of faith, faith by itself, mere words, if it does not have works, is dead. It's useless. It's lifeless. Good for nothing cannot save. Saving faith is not dead faith. And on this point, R.C. Sproul wrote, 
The relationship of faith and good works is one that may be distinguished but never separated. Important point. Faith and good works, different, distinguished, but never separated. He goes on, if good works do not follow from our profession of faith, it is a clear indication that we do not possess justifying faith. And R.C. Sproul concludes, the Reformed formula is we are justified by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. Notice what James says in verses 18 through 19. But if someone will say, you have faith and I have works, as if there's this absolute distinction, show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. So works, according to James, are how how we show our faith. It's how we validate our faith. We, we prove that our faith is authentic. And notice what he says in verse 19, a really startling statement. You believe that God is one, and that's Orthodox Judaism. The Lord, the Lord your God is one God. You believe that God is one. Good job, you do well. James says, Even the demons believe and shudder. The demons, which would include Satan himself, they know biblical orthodoxy. They know that God is one. There is but one living and true God. They know that God is the maker of heaven and earth. They know that Jesus is the son of God. Demons addressed Jesus as the Son of God. They know all there is to know concerning Christian doctrine, orthodoxy. They know it all, but they don't have godly works. They don't, from the heart, willingly obey God. And the implication is, It's not what's up here that saves us. It's what's up here that then gets fleshed out in our lives. It's what gets authenticated through real life. That is what shows the reality of faith. That's what shows that our our faith is alive and not dead. That's what separates a mere professor of religion and someone who's really a follower of Jesus Christ. It's what separates demons from Christians. James goes on. Verse 20. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless, so there's another important word. Faith apart from works is dead. It's no good, verse 17. It's useless, verse 20. In other words, it doesn't save. This is not saving faith that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 3 and verse 4. It's dead, good for nothing, Useless faith. Can that kind of faith save someone? That kind of faith that is apart from from works? And here now, James is going to appeal to two Old Testament examples. One that we would expect, Abraham. One that we would not expect, Rahab. So let's notice what he says. He says, verse 21... Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? And here we need to slow down, as if we're not going slow enough already. 
But here we need to pause because we've already seen Paul uses Abraham as an example of justification by faith alone apart from works. James says, is not Abraham uh, an example? Is not Abraham our father one who is justified by works? So how can Paul's words and Abraham, I'm sorry, James's words regarding Abraham be true at the same time? How is Paul not contradicting James? How is James not contradicting Paul? Maybe they're using a different word. Justified. Well, no. <laughs> they both use the Greek word dikaiao. Dikaiao, it's the same word that Paul uses in Romans and Galatians. But herein lies the key. Uh, dikaiao is a forensic term like we've seen already. In other words, it's, it's a word from the world of the, the courts. It's a legal term. But like a lot of words in Greek, in Hebrew, English, Espanol, you name the language, words often have a range of meanings. They have different meanings depending on the context, depending on the usage. And so the, the fundamental meaning of the word dikaiao is to demonstrate that something is morally right, to show to be right, to prove to be right. Here's the key. The justification that Paul talks about regarding Abraham takes place in Genesis chapter 15. Genesis 15 and verse 6. But the justification that James is talking about in verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? When did Abraham offer up Isaac on the altar? What chapter? Chapter 22. Chapter 22. So in chapter 15, verse 6, and Abraham believed God and he counted it to him for righteousness. There's Abraham, a justified sinner by God's grace. Decades later, decades later, he goes through all that he did with Sarah, his wife. First, Sarah ha um, first I'm sorry, Abraham has Ishmael, not a son of Sarah. Then finally, God uh, fulfills his promise to Abraham and Sarah, and uh, Isaac is born when Abraham was past 100 years old, and Sarah was past childbearing years, and then Isaac was probably a teenager when God commands Abraham to take Isaac and to go uh, to Mount Moriah and to offer him as a sacrifice. So decades, decades later, maybe 50 plus years between the time that God accounted Abraham's faith as righteousness in Genesis 15 until Genesis chapter 22 when uh, Abraham offered up Isaac, his son Isaac on the altar. So, so do you see what's going on here? Paul and, Paul and James are both using the same term to justify, dekaiao, but they're using it in a little bit different sense. And we know that because they're referring to different historical events. Paul uses it to refer to the justification of Abraham in the sight of God in Genesis chapter 15, James uses it to refer to what uh, Moses described at the beginning of Genesis chapter 22 as Abraham's testing. 
So that's what's going on here. They're actually not contradicting each other. Paul is referring to the justification of Abraham in the sight of God. James is referring to the justification of Abraham as an authentic believer. That's the idea. And that was accomplished in Genesis chapter 22 as Abraham's faith was tested. Commentator Kurt Richardson, one of the common commentaries that I use, wrote uh, on James, who can and who cannot justifiably claim to have faith? This justification of the claim to have faith or the unjustifiability of that claim is what is in question in James. Demonstrating the authenticity of faith is the primary focus of this section. James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. That's what's going on. So now notice verse 22 in James chapter 2. James says, you see that faith was acting along with his works and faith was completed by his works. The, that word completed has the sense of perfected or vindicated. And I'm sorry to refer again to the world of uh, military weapons acquisition, but this is what I think about. So when the Department of Defense buys weapon systems or software or parts of weapon systems, there's this process called formal qualification testing. So they, they, they take something, let's say a bomb in the form of this remote control. <laughs> Just seeing if you're awake, not really. So they'll, they'll, they'll take a weapon like this, and it's all designed, it's all built, nothing's going to change it. And they say, okay, now to make sure that this is what we really want, we're going to shake it and bake it and put it through all kinds of uh, trials and tests. We're going to try to make it fail. And then it comes out of the other end of that formal qualification process, then, then the thing is fielded. It's given to the fleet for its use. But what's interesting is the, the thing itself didn't change from the time it entered that formal qualification testing process until the end, assuming that it passed. Sometimes they don't pass, and then you go back to the drawing board. But do you see the point? This thing is exactly what it is. It goes through testing. Then we know, okay, this is the real thing. This is what we really want. Send it out. Let's use it. That's what Genesis chapter 22 was. Genesis chapter 22 was Abraham's formal qualification testing. That's why James says that his faith was completed by his works. In fact, Peter acknowledges this reality of faith as well. If you keep your, your uh, finger here, or bookmark, like me, and flip over into 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. Peter writes, in this you rejoice, what? The trials that we go through as believers and the reality of our faith that ends up getting tested and proven. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Verse 7 is very important. So that, here is the purpose of our trials, so that the tested 
genuineness of your faith. More precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Before you started that trial, you had saving faith in Jesus. But what God does through our trials is that he tests our faith. He proves our faith so that the tested genuineness of our faith results. And we are better off for it. That's what James is talking about with regard to Abraham. His faith was completed by his works. The tested genuineness of Abraham's faith was vindicated, was proven. Verse 23, And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. That's interesting, because it's at the end of James's use of Abraham that he refers to Genesis chapter 15. And the reason for that is that James makes this connection between Abraham's faith in Genesis 15, Abraham believed God, and Abraham's testing in Genesis chapter 22. It's the same faith. It's just that the faith that Abraham had in Genesis 15 was proven, was tested in Genesis chapter 22. Therefore, he comes out of the end of his formal qualification testing and can be legitimately called a friend of God. William Tyndale, the English reformer, put it this way. And as faith only justifies before God, so do deeds only justify before the world. It's another good way to put it. All right, notice verse 24. You see from the example of Abraham that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. We are justified by faith alone, but true justifying faith is never alone. So that's James's example of Abraham. Now Rahab. Verse 25, And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. What's that all about? Well, you can read about Rahab in the book of Joshua. She's introduced in chapter 2, and this specific story is recorded for us in Joshua chapter 2. Uh, Joshua sent spies into the promised land, and he sent them into Jericho to begin with, and... Uh, Rahab, who is a prostitute and not a Jew, she was part of the population that God had commanded Joshua to destroy as God was going to give them the promised land. Anyway, Rahab is aware of what's going on. He, uh, she meets up with these spies and she sides with Israel and protects the spies and ends up becoming an instrument in God fulfilling his purpose to uh, Israel under the leadership of Joshua. So the New Testament considers Rahab to be a believer. So in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 31, we read about her, by faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And Rahab is honored even beyond that. 
Because Rahab is in the line of Jesus. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 5. Rahab was in the royal ancestry of David as well as great David's greater son. She risked her life for God's people. And so Matthew writes, And Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse. And of course, uh, we know that um, Jesus was born of David. So Rahab, what an amazing character. But then what does James mean when he says, in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works? Well, let's assume for a minute, let's assume the position of our opponents. How in the world could a prostitute be justified by works? Rahab was a prostitute. James calls her a prostitute. The writer of the book of Hebrews calls her a prostitute. How could she be justified by her works? If someone is justified by their works in terms of God pronouncing them righteous on the ground of their works, Somehow or another, you have to do something about all of your sin. And the Bible says that turning over a new leaf and all of a sudden starting to do good does absolutely nothing in terms of removing your guilt from all of your sins leading up to your turning over a new leaf. Because doing good is what we're supposed to do anyway. We saw in James chapter 2 and verse 10, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. So new obedience cannot cancel out the guilt of past obedience. But not only that, there's no such thing as such a new leaf that even if you start to do good when you used to do bad, you never, ever, ever sin again. Even the best person sins. James 2.10. We just read about error on the part of Martin Luther. And that wasn't the only error from Martin Luther. Martin Luther wrote some pretty anti-Semitic things against the Jews. Martin Luther was known for having very colorful language. Martin Luther said things that if I said them from our pulpit, you guys would probably fire me. The Apostle Paul re uh, referred to himself by saying, O oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And he said that not regarding his past sin, but about his, his ongoing struggle in sanctification. The good that I want to do, I don't do. And the bad that I don't want to do, that's what I practice, oh wretched man. So Paul, Martin Luther, Abraham, no one has ever been justified by their works except Jesus Christ. Rahab was not justified by her works in that sense. She was justified by her works the way that Abraham was justified by his works in Genesis chapter 22. Because by her risking her life, putting her neck on the line for God's people, she showed that her faith was not theoretical, that it was not useless, that it was not dead, but it was alive, it was real, and it was saving. Rahab showed 
her faith to be authentic by what she did. And so the conclusion, verse 26, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. It cannot save. All right, so that's the teaching of, wow, lots of time's gone by. That's the teaching of James. We're going to talk about uh, Paul a little bit, but quickly. This is review from Paul. We're justified by faith apart from our works. We've already seen that from Romans chapter 3 and chapter 4. There's, there's actually a more emphatic statement from Paul in Galatians chapter 2. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. That's Galatians 2 and verse 16. Paul is emphatically clear. And then we remember that Abraham and David are examples of believers whose faith was counted for them, counted to them for righteousness. Romans chapter 4, verses 3 through 8. But here's what we want to spend more time on. This is in Paul's teaching. Believers are called to walk in good works. So we're going to get to that in Romans. Um, notice what Paul writes in Romans chapter 6 and verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. And by the way, the reason that Paul wrote what he did in, in Romans chapter 6 is because the gospel, which really is justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from our works, the gospel leads to this kind of question. And we can know that we are preaching the biblical gospel, the same gospel that the Apostle Paul preached. We know that we're preaching the biblical gospel when our gospel raises this question. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? That question should come up if the biblical gospel is being proclaimed faithfully. And what Paul does in Romans chapter 6 is to develop this idea of, okay, well, how can that be? Because if you're a believer, then you've been baptized into Christ, you're, you're one with Christ, and if Christ died to sin, then you died to sin as well. And Christ died so that we might walk in newness of life. We're no longer slave, slaves to sin. The old self was crucified. Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So even Paul, in his writings, agrees with James. It's just that James doesn't concentrate on the entry gate James concentrates on the path of faith. James wants to make sure that our profession of faith is not empty, but that our profession of faith is genuine and authentic. And of course, Paul writes a lot more than, than this. In Galatians chapter 5 and verse 6, he says, For in Christ Jesus neither uncircumcision, uh, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Hear that. Faith working through love. Faith works. That's a characteristic of saving faith. We're justified by faith alone, but faith works. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 10, for by grace you have been saved through faith 
And that, not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, we're not saved by our good works, but we are saved for good works, which Paul emphasizes in Titus. Look with me in Titus. You need to see a few verses here briefly. Titus chapter 1 and verse 16. These uh, false teachers from among the Cretans, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works which is an interesting way of putting it. So first part of verse 16, there's a profession of faith. But the second half of verse 16, they deny him by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. In other words, their, uh, their ungodly works invalidates, discredits their profession of faith. Then notice Titus chapter 2 and verse 14. That Jesus Christ gave himself up for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. God saves us by grace through faith, not a result of our works, but for good works. And then Titus chapter 3 and verse 8. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God, there's a profession of faith, may be careful to devote themselves to good works. There's James's justification. These things are excellent and profitable for people. And then verse 14. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. And so you see that James and Paul are in agreement. They don't contradict each other. What's on trial in Paul are standing before God. The grand question is, how can a sinner be righteous before God? What's on trial in James is the genuineness, the authenticity of our faith. Is our faith dead faith or is it living faith? The meaning of justification for Paul is God's declaration of a person as righteous. For James, it's validation of true, authentic faith. The role of Abraham for Paul is an example of justification by faith alone. For James... Abraham's faith passed the test and was validated. In other words, he was justified. The rule of works for Paul, they can't uh, justify us before God, but they always go along with true saving faith. Good works are the fruit of our salvation. For James, they justify our faith as genuine. They are the vital sign of living faith. And to sum this up, the um, Westminster Confession, uh, which is echoed in the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, chapter 11 on justification, it says, faith that receives and rests on Christ and his righteousness is the only instrument of justification. Yet it does not occur by itself in the person justified but it is always accompanied by every other saving grace. It is not a dead faith, but works through faith. And so, in terms of takeaways, there is, in fact, no contradiction in the Bible. The Bible is free of errors. But like I mentioned, it's also not easy. And you might say to yourself, well, it sure would have been easy 
if, J if James and Paul could have gotten together in a conference room and worked out their letters to, with each other and made sure they didn't use the same word, that would have made it easier. But that's what we call collusion. And that's what makes the Bible so beautiful. It is the word of God. The Bible itself passes the test as the word of God without human help, without the human authors colluding with each other. But there are no ultimate, absolute, logical contradictions in the Bible. And then the other takeaway, and really this is the big one, is to ask ourselves the question. Let me ask you this question. Do you have the kind of faith that James describes as a living faith, saving faith, or is your faith just a mere, bare, useless, dead faith? And hopefully you can see that if your profession of faith does not produce good works, works that Christ commands, works that glorifies the God who saves you, if your profession of faith doesn't produce good works in your life, then your profession of faith is empty, you're not saved, the Bible says, but then the solution is not then to go back into your closet and drum up a bunch of good works. The solution is go to Christ, like, like every other unsaved sinners. Go to Christ. Go to Jesus who died in the place for sinners like you. Go to Christ who promises to give us all things that we need to serve him. The one who says, without me, you can do nothing. But whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Go to Christ and be saved. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its clarity. We thank you for its precision. We thank you for its trustworthiness. Thank you for its accuracy. And Lord, we thank you for the message of Paul and the message of James. And it's one message to your message. Would you help us to take it to heart? Would you help us to put it to work in our lives? And we pray, Lord, that maybe today would be the day that somebody was, uh, who has been confused about what it means to have faith in Jesus, maybe today would be the day that they get it. The Holy Spirit brings them light and conviction. May it be that today would be the day that they would be drawn to Christ for salvation. We pray in his name. Amen.